All right, guys, conflict resolution. Um, this is uh, lesson four in this series uh, on conflict and <clears throat> peacemaking. We're taking some time during these summer months uh, to consider this topic before we sort of jump into some new things when we get to September. Um, but we're doing this really for a number of a variety of reasons. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, right after spending three chapters sort of unpacking the meaning and significance of the gospel, Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And we've looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago where Paul is simply saying that we need to walk worthily or, or to bring, it's really the idea of bringing into equilibrium or, or to bring, you think of it this way, to bring your conduct or your walk in balance with or equal to your calling to live up to your calling as a follower of Christ who has been loved, predestined, adopted, forgiven, justified, saved by grace from God's judgment, placed in the body of Christ and created, as Paul says back in chapter 2 and verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And at the top of the list of good works that God has for you to walk in, uh, at the top of that has to do with how you treat one another and how we treat one another in the church, the family of God. So that's why Paul says there in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is our duty as followers of Jesus um, to, to respond to conflict and to intention in relationships in a way that is remarkably different than the way that the world does. To live out the gospel, to forgive because we've been forgiven, to show mercy because we've been shown mercy, to be kind to others because we have tasted of the Lord's kindness, to show grace and to speak the truth in love because Jesus is full of grace and truth. So that's one reason you might say that we're doing this, is it's it's just a part... It's just the natural uh, application of our identity, of who we are. We have been forgiven, and therefore we're called to be peacemakers and to forgive others and those, those, those things. Another reason that we're looking at this is because we've said God has ordained conflict, and conflict should always be understood as an important part of His plan for us, which is significant, we said, because we tend to view uh, and to see conflict as an obstacle or as something to be avoided at all costs. But Scripture teaches that what we really need to do is to embrace conflict as an opportunity, an opportunity to both glorify God and to exemplify Christ and, and to not overlook the benefits that sometimes come as a result of conflict or as a result or consequence of difficult relationships. So some of those benefits we've, dis- we've looked at, they're very similar to the list of benefits that we, we receive and enjoy uh, and grow from, from really trials in general. So conflict just sort of fits under that maybe broader cat- category of temptations and trials. But these things drive us to the scriptures. They, they force us to consider what we really believe. They force us to consider if there's a discrepancy between what we say we believe and what we actually live. So it's like we have, we, we have this sort of um, um, 
professed theology, and then we have the theology that actually gets lived out every day. And sometimes there can be a gap between those things, right? We say one thing, we do another. And so conflict drives us to, to examine our hearts and to think about those things. It helps us to, to work hard at improving communication skills, um, causes us to produce or produces in us spiritual growth and endurance. It exposes our weaknesses and deficiencies uh, uh, in ways that we can't imagine. <laughs> it's like in those times when the pressure is on, uh, we, we are often blind to those uh, sins in our lives and in our hearts, and the Lord uses conflict to bring those things to the surface. So just so many benefits uh, that we've... Uh, that we can gain from this. So, and so rather than just say, man, I've got to, I've got to avoid conflict. I've got to be a peace faker. I mean, I've just got to just, I got to have peace with everybody at all times. Uh, we need to realize that in God's providence, he brings tension in relationships to us and it's for our good and, and he's working and we need to embrace that and look for those things. A uh, third reason, simply put, that we're doing this is the fact that peacemaking isn't an option for a Christian. Uh, it is a mandate, and there are numerous passages that we've touched on uh, in the last few weeks. Romans fourteen nineteen. so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. 1 Thessalonians five thirteen, where Paul just simply says, live in peace with one another. And again, that's on the heels of a discussion about how the church is to relate to their leaders. And Paul's admonition to the church is to say, you will be a great blessing to your leaders when you live in harmony with one another. So that, that is, a, that is a, a, a great way to esteem and to show love for the elders of the church is to simply work on those relationships in your life and to embrace these gospel realities and to, to strive to preserve the peace in the body of Christ. Hebrews twelve fourteen pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And so... Here, I think it just stands at least stands out to me the association between pursuing peace and our sanctification, <laughs> right? So we want to be holy people, and a part of being holy people, it has everything to do with the way we relate to others, right? So we, we can say we're holy and set apart and godly, but if we're failing miserably in relationships, then there's there's a big problem there. So we can't separate this uh, this dynamic, this the, the way in which we relate to others, particularly in the body of Christ, um, and so, somehow separate that from this process of sanctification. So in all those verses, the, the basis for our mandate to strive for peace is the fact that God has made peace with us. God is the ultimate peacemaker. We are to be imitators of Him, according to Ephesians 5.1, and peacemaking is a family trait. That's why we found this statement and looked at this the last time. It was this Matthew 5, 9 in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Because when we are peacemakers, we are exhibiting one of the strongest testimonies of God's nature in our hearts that we could ever, ever give. So we're called not to seek out conflict or to stir up trouble and not to avoid conflict at all costs, but to deal with conflict in a way, a godly way when it comes, and to apply the truths of the gospel to conflict in relationships. And then I would add one more reason 
why I think this is important for us to take some time thinking about. And that is that the Bible, the Bible teaches that one of the key ways <clears throat> that God gauges success in our Christian lives is by our relationships. Paul says this, Galatians 5, 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So this is very similar to what Pastor Shane's been talking about. I think we'll be starting into Romans 14 uh, in our sermon series this morning, but we've been working our way for weeks through Romans chapter 12 and then Romans chapter 13. And this was, the, this was sort of the thread that Shane talked about, was sort of connected everything in chapter 12 and 13 was this idea of, this, this idea of love. And uh, Paul even references this issue of, of loving your neighbor as, as yourself and that being this fulfillment of, of, of the entire law. So loving your neighbors yourself, loving others, not avoiding close relationships, not exploiting <clears throat> relationships, not giving up on difficult relationships, but committing yourself to them. We say storing up your, for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. <clears throat> because one, one of the main things that you can invest in that will outlast this world. That will, if you think, what is the one of one of the things I can invest time and energy into that will continue into eternity? Relationships. Relationships. <clears throat> not your car, not your four hundred one k, not your house, your education, your job, and those things, but primarily relationships. And so, so this is one of the best indications of your spiritual growth. Uh, Harold Honer, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes this. He says, Spiritual growth and maturity of individual believers is measured in light of the body of believers. Individual spiritual growth that is not shared with the rest of the body is not true spiritual growth or maturity. Although today individualism highly prizes independence, the New Testament envisions individuals dependent on the Lord and fellow members of the body in a corporate setting. So what he's saying is that when you, when you go through Ephesians, the thing you have to keep in mind is when Paul gets into Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and begin, begins to give us all these wonderful, practical, okay, here's, here's how you grow, man. I mean, this is, this is how you grow spiritually. You're putting off these things and you're putting on these things and it's very, it's very easy at that point to go individual, right? To just think about me and my spiritual life. But you have to realize that this was written to the church and that the main way in which we live out the truths of the first three chapters of Ephesians is in the context of body life. It's in the context of the family of God and the church. So you can speak with great eloquence. You can have a lot of knowledge, you can have great faith, you can have many gifts, you can exhibit great sacrifice. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? That it's nothing without love, right? And what was going on in the Corinthian church, right? A lot of competition, 
a lot of comparing, a, a, lot of, a lot of ego. And Paul inserts into that this, uh, this explanation and definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is really challenging those issues in that church. And he actually says those things. He says, listen, you, you may have those gifts and you may have that understanding and, and you may sacrifice your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, it's, it's, it amounts to nothing. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why we need to look into this is because it's easy for us to assume that we're, we're maturing. It's easy for us to assume that we're growing as Christians. I'm saying if you want to... If you wanna, a good gauge on how you're doing as a Christian. If you're really growing, you need to look around at your relationships. You need to, to look at your relationships, and that could be in your, in your, in your family, uh, but again, particularly in, in the body of Christ. Are you building up the body? Are you caring for its members? Um, or are you sitting back waiting for others to serve you uh, in, in ways Scripture would call us to, to step up and to serve others. Um, but a lot of times we sit back waiting for that, come to church with a very, a very self-centered mindset, and yet we claim that we're growing spiritually. So these are the things that often reveal whether we are growing or not. It's how, how are we doing in those relationships in, in the body. Now, last time I proposed a definition of conflict, uh, which I borrowed from Ken Sandy, and his, he's the author of a book titled The Peacemaker, and there's a peacemaker, there's a lot of, these, a lot of spin-off books that were done um, off of that main work. Um, it was a broad definition. I think it's still, still helpful. Uh, Ken Sandy says this. He says, conflict happens when you are at odds with another person over what you think, want, or do. Okay, so it's very simple. Uh, some, you, you are at odds, so there, there's, there's, things are, are clashing. There's a, a clashing over what you think and what somebody else thinks. It's a clash over what you want and what somebody else wants. It's a clash over something that you're doing which, versus what someone else is doing. And so these things don't just happen in a vacuum. They begin when things don't go the way that we want them to go. When we're not thinking the same way about an issue as someone else or our agenda and their agenda don't line up, and what often happens next is that we sin by being discontent and demanding our own way and responding in a way that reveals not just a problem between our agenda and that person's agenda, but more deeply the conflict, it reveals this conflict between your agenda and God's agenda. Because in that moment, again, it's, there's a, there's a self, selfishness and a pride that, that comes in, and that's why these things aren't, aren't quickly dealt with and, and resolved. So that, I think that definition will serve us well, and we'll, we'll come back to that, talk more about that in the weeks to come. We also began to identify various causes of conflict. Just looking at the Scriptures and, and what the Bible says about conflict, or, or you might say some, looking at some specific examples of situations that led to conflict, uh, so far we've mentioned three of them. The first one is simply God-given diversity. Um, and, and this is, we referred to the analogy of the human body that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's um, 
teaching us that we each have an important role to play in the church. We, we, we each bring different gifts, uh, different perspectives to the table, and, and this God-given diversity uh, often leads to, we, we might call them just natural differences. So we have varying opinions, we have varying convictions and desires and priorities, and if we handle those things well, then there, again, there's, there's good things that come from that. It stimulates dialogue, creativity, and change, uh, but we've got to have the right attitude. So we've got to make sure that we're, we're not um, forgetting about Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. We've got to make sure that coupled with that, we have the patience and the kindness and the graciousness to, to work through those things. So we've got to have the right, right um, attitudes going into it, and we've got to understand that many of our differences aren't about right and wrong. They're, 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 they're simply the result of these God-given features. So that's one, God-given diversity. A second cause we looked at was just simple misunderstandings. We said that there is no, no person on this planet that perfectly communicates, right? I mean, whether, whether it's speaking or listening. Uh, and sometimes conflict ari- arises simply because we think we have spoken or made ourselves clear uh, or we've listened and understood you know, correctly, yet we jump to conclusions that are faulty. Even this week, I was talking about uh, a gentleman that, that I've been counseling, and uh, it, was a, it was an issue of of infidelity, and I just mentioned that this guy was, I had been meeting with him for counseling, and that um, I made this this statement that uh, the wife, I said, uh, is seeing someone else. And what I meant by that was that she was not participating in the counseling because she had decided she would meet with this other counselor in the community. So I had been meeting with him for several weeks. She had only attended one of those meetings. And so as I'm saying this, it's like I kind of, the conversation kept moving along and it just kept like nagging at me thinking, I, I'm afraid that what they think about what I just said is that he was seeing someone, right? He was being unfaithful to her and now he's in counseling and now she's seeing someone. And assuming that she, now she's being unfaithful. But all I was trying to say is that, no, he's seeing me as his counselor, and then she's seeing another counselor, right? So it's just those kinds of things. And I'm saying, then, then what happens, right? So then somebody leaves and says, well, you know, of course, they didn't know specifically who I was talking about. I was describing the situation in really generic terms. But, you know, you know how this goes. I mean, people hear that, and they're like, you know what Joel said, right? He said that she was seeing someone. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, I'm like, I didn't say that. Well, maybe I did say that. You know, it's like you, you, that's how that's how easily this thing uh, goes goes off the tracks. So, uh, and then you add to that just our impatience, right? You add to that element impatience and prejudice, uh, wrong attitudes, that things that just feed our misunderstandings. Because sometimes when we hear like that, you hear something you got to choose. It either hits you a certain way or you realize he could mean this or he could mean that. But rather than get clarification, because sometimes we want to slander and gossip, right? We realize there's two ways to go here, and I actually like going this other direction, right? Because I don't really care for that lady. And so I'm going to just 
I don't know, in a benign way, pass on that she's seeing someone. And that's all I have to say. And then if they ever call me on the carpet and say, well, you told me that she was seeing someone. She said, well, that's just what Joel said. Right? And so I'm like, and I'm, I'm saying, I didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe I did. You know, it's like, and now I'm racking my brain trying to figure out, rewind, and did I say that? And going back to this, maybe a comment that I don't even, I don't even remember even making. That's, that's, that's how, that's how crazy this is sometimes. I also, uh, referenced an article by Al Mohler on the, what, he, what we, call this sort of a theological, the noetic effects of the fall, or you might just say the, the intellectual consequences of sin. And he just jams out just 14 of these <laughs> consequences of the fall on our thinking, on our intellect. And when you read this, you're just, by the end of it, you're just like, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Right, And so these are some of them. Ignorance was the first thing. Distractedness. And he's just saying that before, think about this, folks, before the fall, Adam was not distracted in a sinful way. Can you imagine being focused at all times on the right thing? That's what Adam experienced before Genesis 3. But now we're, we're on the other side of that, right? And so just distractions... He talks about that forgetfulness, amen, right? <laughs> forgetfulness, prejudice, faulty perspectives was number five. Number six, intellectual fatigue. He says, with the fast pace of modern life and the multitude of matters pressing for our attention, we can begin to feel depleted in our intellectual capacities and mental reserves. Hello. I mean, are you there, right? It's just like, I can't take anymore, right? That is just too, too much information, I'm into, I'm going, to use, I'm going to use that this week. I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I need a break. I'm intellectually fatigued right now. Number seven, inconsistencies. He said it would be bad enough if we were merely plagued with inconsistencies. The bigger problem, however, is that we do not even see them in ourselves, though they are more readily detected by others. Inconsistencies. Number eight, failure to draw the right conclusions. He says, there is now, as a result of sin, there is the willful denial of and blindness toward data. We can look, I mean, the facts right there in front of us. And people will say, I don't, that's not true. You know, that wall is not that color. It's, a, this other, it's another color. Failure to draw the right conclusions. Number nine, intellectual apathy. He says, if we did not bear the noetic effects of the fall, we would be infinitely passionate about the things that should be of our infinite concern. Right? If we, hadn't, if we, if we had, had not fallen, we would be infinitely passionate about the things that should be of our infinite concern. The problem is, we don't even have the concerns right most of the time, right? We're, we're dabbling in things that are, on, are not even of infinite concern. And even if we could find, if we, if we could locate those things of infinite concern, then our problem is that we're not infinitely passionate about them, right? We're just dabbling, right? We're just sometimes a half-hearted effort in our pursuit of those things which are truly uh, meaningful and important to God. Number 10, dogmatism and closed-mindedness. He says, we hold to things with tenacity that we should not hold on to at all because the intellect seizes upon certain ideas and thoughts like comfort food. 
They are only taken away from us with great force, even if reason and data directly contradict them. 11, intellectual pride. 12, vain imagination. And then he mentions this. Well, 14 is partial knowledge. He says we know only in part, and sometimes we do not even know how partial our knowledge is. But number 13 is miscommunication. He says translation is difficult. And miscommunication is one of the great limitations upon intellectual advance. We live on the other side of both Genesis 3, the fall, and Genesis 11, the confusion of language at Babel. From the story of the Tower of Babel, we understand that this issue of miscommunication is not an accident. So it's just, this is just simple misunderstandings, Right? You said something, you thought you communicated clearly, but guess what? You're sinful. <laughs> you can't do that all the time. It's, it's a struggle and a battle to communicate with candor, with honesty, being truthful all the time. I mean, that is a battle to do that. That is why Ephesians says you have to put off lying, <laughs> right? That's a part of the old, the old life, right? But man, do we gravitate back to that. But we have to put that away. We have to put on truth. So this, this is just a, a consequence of, of our sinfulness. Simple misunderstandings. And so we have to, we have to recognize that, folks. And, and when people challenge us, hey, you, weren't, you didn't say that. or We just we got to know in our hearts and minds there's the possibility that we, weren't, we didn't communicate well. We didn't articulate well. Or someone was telling something to us. And we weren't listening well, right? We were grabbing on to certain ideas and things, and we weren't really here. We're, we're bad about this in marriage. I mean, those of you who are married, right? I mean, you're listening to your spouse, and you can't wait for them to stop talking because you've got something you need to say, right? So you're trying to speed this thing up to get to the point that you're trying to make. And so you're, you're not listening well. It happens. And when it does, it creates clashes and, and conflicts. Uh, another cause is man-made preferences. So this is this is um, is this number three? Man-made preferences. Are we are we on? Is that what I want to say number three? Man-made preferences. So while while being called to unity in Christ and in the gospel, often we establish our unity and fellowship on the basis of personal preferences or cultural issues or personal convictions. Uh, now in in the states, this manifests itself in in issues. In, at least in a church setting, sometimes these things come out in music styles, worship styles, parenting methods, methods of ministry or evangelism, schooling choices, public school, private school, Christian school, homeschool. And what I would say here, we're actually going to come back to this in, in detail by the end of our series, but it's important that, we're, that we not be dogmatic about all of our convictions. Okay? How many of you have ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Okay, great one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. Well, he shared some things when he was 24 years old, um, some very firmly held opinions that he had that I would imagine that he regretted later in his ministry and life. In fact, just a few questions. How, how, how many men here this morning are wearing a wristwatch? Raise your hand. You got a wristwatch on? Okay. How, how many of you men and ladies took at least one bath or shower this week? Raise your hand. 
Amen. And we're grateful. We thank you. Thank you for that. And if you didn't, we have a special small group home fellowship that we'd like for you to join. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how many of you listened to the radio this past week at least one time? Okay. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, okay? <laughs> Quote, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats, which are these things that cover their, their shoes, Uh, Shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. I mean, this is offensive to this guy. I mean, he just can't, cannot imagine that a man would wear a wristwatch. Then he says this, he says, The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. So any of you who have a bathroom in your home, okay, He says, if I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. Then he says, when I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus. (laughs) You know what that is, right? That's a radio. And then in in his day. He says, I know at once that there is something wrong. Your five valve sets may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. So what is he he saying by that? He's saying that this new device, right, there'll never be a time when that would ever be used to broadcast... This. How many of you not only listen to the radio this week, but how many of you listen to, in some form, this? Preaching, right? Okay. Now that sounds ridiculous. Now you're, you're like, well, I don't know about this. I don't know much about this Martin Lloyd-Jones guy, but I, I'm t- I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to read any of his stuff. Well, you need to read his stuff, okay? This guy's a fantastic commentator and preacher, made a huge impact uh, in evangelicalism. But here's my point. We are guilty of doing the very same thing. Are we not? I mean, he's a new piece of technology, a new thing. The Lord would never use that. And, and for a person to dress this way or to dress that way or, my goodness, to take a bath, nothing would be more tragic than that. So my point here is just that, we, guys, we, we, have, we have preferences. We form opinions in areas and judge others rather than love others who don't share our perspectives about things, whether it's fair trade coffee or how to treat Sundays or listening to secular music or playing video games or whether to have an Easter egg hunt or whether to date or to court, what to spend your money on, who to vote for, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Right now we're going to come, the reason we're going to come back to this in the last couple of weeks of the summer is because I think this is one of the most critical issues, I think, for our church. It is so easy, folks, to, to base our unity on the agreement we have in those areas and not to come to church to worship and focus on the things that actually 
unite us. Because when you get to Ephesians 4, right, 1, 2, and 3, well, guess what? Guess where Paul goes next? He talks about one faith, one Lord, one... Right? I mean, this is like the core of what we believe. This is like, I mean, I don't care what you believe about education choices. If you believe in salvation by grace through Christ alone, praise God, and we need to go worship the Lord together in a few minutes. Like, that's what brings us together. But we don't often come to church thinking and dwelling upon those things, we sometimes come wanting to have that conversation in the hallway with either the person that we have figured out through a post that week on Facebook that they're like we are, and we can't wait to get together and talk about that common ground, or we found out because we didn't get the like, we got the, right? I mean, we, did, we got the negative that now we come to church and guess what? We're either ready to challenge that person or just ignore them altogether. Guilty? Yeah, I mean, y'all could say, I don't have Facebook, so I'm never guilty of this, but I'm just kidding. (laughs) We all do it, right? We all do it, and in the process, folks, the gospel is eclipsed. That's what happens. Our hearts and attitudes are neglected. Disunity prevails when we form these barriers based on personal preferences as we more and more keep our distance from others who hold to other ideas and preferences. We avoid being around them because certain things that they do make us feel uncomfortable, but in avoiding each other, the communication breaks down and hurt feelings happen. So we're going to have to come back, I think, to this issue specifically because I just think there's so much, so many details that we need to get into there on how to even... How to even negotiate these? I mean, how, how do you even know if it's a personal conviction or preference? How do you know if it's an essential thing or if it's a, a non-essential thing or if it's a primary issue, a secondary issue, a tertiary issue? It's like, how do you even get it into the right box to begin with in your own mind? Because if you don't get it in the right category, then you're already, you're already going down the wrong track. But then if you can get that in your mind and you can understand how to discern when people are talking to you about their what they believe and what they do, then you figure out where to put that. But even beyond that, again, you've got to have the right attitudes. You've got to have love. You've got to have mercy and grace. It's like, then you've got to relate. Okay, So part of it is just figuring it out, putting it in its proper place. But even I mean, once you do that, I mean, that's, that's, that's important. But, but you've got to then work through it. Right? You've got to know how to do that in a, in a godly way. All right, let's, uh, the fourth one, and we'll, we'll do this one, then we'll come back and talk about five. We've got five and six. Uh, we'll do that next time. But the fourth possible cause, we'll call it authority issues. Authority issues, which is very common, a uh, very common problem in churches today. And I want to sort of then break this down into three areas. Uh, the first one, let's just call a failure to exercise authority. A failure to exercise authority which might not be the first thing that you think of when it comes to conflict, but I put it here at the top because it may be the most overlooked source of conflict in church leadership. And it's subtle because it creates conflict often where we least expect it. We might call this source of conflict by other words, maybe being indecisive or being unwilling to be specific in our leadership and vision. So, This causes conflict, especially when we assign 
for example, a ministry project to someone, but then we do not give that person specific instructions and training to carry out that ministry, right? So it's like, it would be, you know, hey, we have this ministry need. Would somebody help us with that? And yes, I'll be glad to help with that. But then there's not the equipping doesn't come (laughs) and the clarity does not come. And so what usually happens is that leads to disappointment with how some someone does something there might be guilt over doing a bad job or resentment over feeling overwhelmed by the responsibility or complaining unnecessary fatigue confusion over how to communicate and those kinds of things Uh, from from another angle conflict may arise simply because we fail to delegate authority so again, this, this is a failure to exercise authority, and it causes conflict. For example, as Moses was leading the, the people, uh, two to three million of them, he was responsible for teaching them God's laws and statutes so that they would begin to learn to live in, in new ways of righteousness. But Moses was just one man, and consequently, a lot of the issues related to the law were not being addressed because Moses was trying to do it all himself. And so people were fighting simply because they needed to be taught and shepherded, but Moses didn't have enough hours to do it all. And so we we read about this in Exodus 18, verse 17. It says, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, I will give you counsel and God be with you. you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work which they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times." Let it be that every, every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, verse 23, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So in these cases... In fact, this reminds me some of that, the Acts 6, we did look at that passage already, but the, in the early church and the apostles setting aside, right, and saying these men need to take care of these needs because we need to make sure that we continue to devote ourselves to the word and to prayer. It's that same sort of idea. But in, in these cases, conflict arose over the issue of a failure to exercise authority properly. So I'm just saying when leaders fail to do this, to delegate when leaders fail to provide training or to provide the teaching necessary or the encouragement necessary or the equipping necessary to do the task, conflicts come up as a result of that. And I, I can give you examples of this. I mean, and, 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 and since the early days of, of, of ministry in my early, early 20s, of, of examples of how this created fatigue and confusion and and, and, and sinful attitudes and those disappointments, those hurts, again, that, that when not dealt with, lead to bigger problems. 
Uh, Secondly, conflict over authority involves, we'll call this the abuse of authority. The abuse of authority, which manifests itself in different ways and in different cultures and settings. Uh, But it's clearly an issue that is always a temptation for those in leadership because the New Testament speaks of it so often and so much. Uh, Jesus frequently emphasized to his disciples that spiritual leadership in the church was to be clearly distinct from worldly leadership and that spiritual leadership does not lord it over those entrusted to you. So in Luke 22, Jesus taught that the greatest among you, he says, will be the least and that those who lead are to be servants. Uh, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, this is, is speaking of the responsibility of, of, of pastors, shepherds, and elders. He's, Peter warns that those entrusted with leadership must not lord it over those allotted to your charge. Paul teaches that elders in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, must not be self-willed. That, is, that means that they're not to be overbearing or arrogant. They're, they're, an elder must not be anxious to dominate or control others. An elder must not insist on having his own way or not be headstrong. Elders need to be learners and often need counsel and warnings because if they refuse advice or if they reject wise counsel, they may rush into a situations blindly and damage the church. They, they, they must learn to listen to advice and to listen to criticism I think there's even an, an element of this in Jesus' warning to the Pharisees. In Luke 11.46, Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So without, without Jesus saying, without seeing your own need for mercy, you will n- not be eager to show mercy to others. So what these religious leaders were doing is they were piling up heavy loads of religious duties and rules and regulations and rituals until they were unbearable and impossible to carry. And when the people failed to keep all of those requirements as they were doomed to do, they were then sort of rebuked and chided by these leaders. So in the end, these illegitimate spiritual leaders added the heaviest burden of all, which is guilt. So on top of the weariness and on top of the frustration, then you add this element of guilt to that. And so people took, took on these legalistic burdens alone and were devastated when they failed to keep those things. And so the issue here is that these false spiritual leaders did not feel that they themselves needed God's grace. And thus they did not feel the need, nor did they understand how to express grace to others. Now, this particular misuse of authority can take on different forms, but it's, it, it, it often involves an attitude by leadership that they are above the accountability of others. Or they begin to use the rule book, whatever that is. It's a constitution, it's bylaws, it's some sort of procedural, procedural authority to push their own ideas or to keep other people from advancing a particular idea without ever showing enough concern or care to respectfully communicate with that person about the differences. Or in some cases, people use their position to cast doubt and suspicion on the character of someone they fear is a rival power or may even use their ministry of teaching to target someone and try to sway opinions against them. So all of those are, are things that represent an, an abuse of, of authority.
Uh, thirdly, let me just mention one other, this falling under this idea of authority, and that is con- conflict often arises over the right of authority. The right of authority. Uh, this is the classic challenge for who should have the most influence or sway in decision-making and direction of what we do as a group. So we see this in the story of Miriam and Aaron in Numbers chapter 12 as they were challenging Moses' right to authority. And so you remember they said this, they asked this question, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us as well? And the answer is, well, yes... In, in a way, I mean, after, after all, these were, these were prominent figures, right? I mean, in this, this Old Testament narrative, I mean, Aaron and Miriam were prominent figures in that. Miriam was a prophetess. Aaron was a high priest. Both were blood relatives of Moses. And nevertheless, what we learn is that by God's favor, Moses alone heard from the Lord in a very unique way. Scripture says face-to-face, or it's, it's this idea of, with, without mediation, right, because of this, this, this very un, unique relationship Moses had with the Lord. And, and, and God is the one who established and advanced Moses' leadership, right? In fact, the text tells us Moses was meek, right? Meekest man on the earth. So they didn't have a legitimate reason to challenge this and to be envious, and yet they were. Right? This led to an attitude of envy and jealousy because they had allowed the Lord's blessing of them in service to Him to lead them to an ungodly conflict over who had the right to lead the people. Now, in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul who was constantly battling this issue of those who wanted to challenge his right to lead the church, uh, always trying to undermine the Apostle Paul's authority. Uh, one other uh, clear example of this, uh, this problem is a man named Diotrephes, um, who is an opponent of the Apostle John. Uh, and the term that, that's, that describes this man, in fact, it's looked at for Third John, this is uh, the, th- the third letter towards uh, right, right before Revelation here. The third letter of John, which is one chapter, but in verse 9, John uses a particular term to describe this Man, and it's the it's found only here in the New Testament, right? And here's here's the term. And this first part, how many of you have have an a guess at what this right here is? What is it? Love. Okay, so this is love. And then this term here, what do you say, Mark? Yes, one of our Greek students here. All right. First or, or preeminent. In fact, this word here, just because this is sort of a, a compound word, but this term here is only found in one other place, and it's in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and it's speaking about Jesus. And this is what Paul says there, of Christ. He says, He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Or some translations say preeminence in everything. So when John grabs this and puts it with this, what is he saying? That this man loved to be 
first place, right? That was the issue of his heart. That, that, that is where the true picture of men like Diotrephes comes from. Their, their desire to be first extends not just to their position before men, but even their position above Christ. So they're seeking to be first, to demand the allegiance that belongs to Christ alone. Uh, and this is Diotrephes, a man with an insatiable desire for preeminence, whose heart secretly delighted in the praise of praises of others which fed his exalted view of his own abilities, which led to an unsubmissive heart towards church authority and a level of deceit as he unjustly accused the Apostle John and John's fellow workers with, the Scripture says there, with wicked words. And equally destructive was Diotrephes' lust for power, a desire which always leads to isolation from those authorities to whom we are accountable. So again, it's this, you combine that added to what it leads to is that you're, you're not accountable to anybody now. Why would you be accountable to people that are here, right? Nobody's on your level, right? Because you're first. You have this desire for preeminence, and so you remove yourself from those who hold you accountable. And this is exactly what Diotrephes did. He opposed John's apostolic leadership because he viewed others as obstacles to the furtherance of his own power and control. In fact, verse 10 of 3 John says that he was not satisfied with mere slander, but also tried to hinder the outreach ministries of other churches. So in his resentment, he refused to serve a traveling band of missionaries, because the text says, "...neither does he receive the brethren." So he even forbade those who desired to do so and put them out of the church, manipulating his own congregation and citing them to disfellowship with anyone who went against his orders, separating believers from one another, instructing believers to, com- to not communicate with one another, a clutching for control, a suspicion of others, a fear of losing ground in the battle for self-importance and a rejection of those with a proven track record of faithfulness in ministry. That is a portrait of personal domination. That is not biblical leadership. That is the total opposite of what Scripture describes as the heart of a shepherd, a pastor, an elder, an overseer. And it inevitably leads to conflict it inevitably leads to a disruption in the ministry, needed ministry, and it harms, in the end, it brings harm to the sheep. It hurts, it hurts the flock. So, authority, again, there's it's just the, the, the truth, folks, is that a lot of conflicts in the church today are as, as a, a result of poor leadership. Just a, an abuse of authority, a misuse of authority, uh, a, a struggle over who has the right to lead, a, a lack of delegation, just leaders not doing what leaders are called to do. Shepherds not doing what shepherds are called to do. So these are just things. We just need to, I'm just trying to lay out these different examples because we're not, when we say conflict, we might just be thinking one thing. Oh, conflict in this situation you're in or conflict in my marriage or conflict at work. But I'm just saying this, this issue of conflict is a, very broad subject in Scripture. And we have lots of, of vivid examples in Scripture of how this plays out in all kinds of settings and in relationships. 
So this one's on, this one's on leaders. This one's on those who are in authority. Uh, they, can, they can make sinful decisions and choices and bring strain and stress to the body of Christ when they fail in their own lives. Now, there's two more, so we're going to come back and we're going to talk about those next time. One of those is really dealing with just this issue of the heart, just desires of the heart, which is probably the broadest uh, form uh, of, of conflict. In other words, this, it really does, folks, come down to what's going on right here, right? What do we really want out of anything, right? I mean, it has to do with expectations and what is something, do I have to have this? Is it a need? Is it a desire? Is it a want? We'll end up over in James chapter 4, look in detail in both James chapter 3 and 4. But we'll come back to to this list. And and again, what I want to do is defining this thing, giving you examples of it, of different, different kinds of conflicts and that you'll, you'll probably encounter at some point in your Christian life. Then we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how to resolve it, right? In some ways, you can avoid some of it legitimately. And I mean, we don't avoid conflict at all costs, but there are some conflicts we should avoid. And so we're going to, we need to try to do that. But then there's some times where that's going to, conflict's going to be inevitable. And then when that happens, or we're way past, right? We've already sinned. How do we resolve that? How do we make things right with another person? What are the actual biblical principles that come into play, the steps that we need to take? And then, like I said, well, once we get through talking about those things, then we'll come back, and before we finish in August, we'll come back and touch on this issue of personal convictions and preferences uh, specifically because, again, I think that's such a, such a key, key area for us to understand. And in light of that, I would just say listen intently over the next few weeks to the sermons. Because we're just getting into Romans 14 and 15, which have to do with that very subject. So take good notes, listen well, and then when I get to the end of August, depending on how fast Shane goes, right, I may not have to say a whole lot. I may just say, you know what, just listen to the sermon. <laughs> he covered it all, but we'll, we'll, we may add a few things. So, all right, folks, uh, thank you for your time.